Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right. Today's podcast is titled Global Systems Outlook, Trends, Risks and Scenarios. Basically, this is the title of a handbook written by Valina Chakarova. Valina is the director of the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy in Vienna, Austria. She conducts strategic foresight and trends analyses for the Austrian Ministry of Defense and is an instructor at the Real World Risk Institute led by the best-selling author Nassim Taleb. Her research work includes uh, researching, consulting, lectures, and publications on global and regional trends. She also looks at future scenarios and geopolitical topics for clients from the public and private sector. She's currently writing a book on the Dragon Bear, Dragon Bear, uh, which is China and Russia, and its impact on global affairs based on systems thinking, strategic foresight, geopolitics, and geoeconomics. She is also finishing a PhD dissertation on the role of external actors in Eastern Europe, the case of Ukraine, Belarus, Azerbaijan at the University of Vienna. Valina, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. It's a great pleasure uh, being uh, here today and discussing some of my concepts and uh, main uh, contributions over the last uh, several years. All right, Valina. So let's start with this. Um, so I read your handbook. First of all, uh, I, I, I want to say it was it was fantastic. I really had a great time reading it. But if we were to start with giving people a basic introduction to the concept of the handbook insight. So, so when you say global systems, uh, a global system outlook, trends, risks, and scenarios, what exactly are we talking about? So first, I need to stress that uh, the global system outlook was published uh, during uh, the previous US administration. And uh, still, of course, the main trends are in place we are going to discuss them but uh, it needs uh, certain updates and uh, the second uh, thing i would like to stress right in advance is that i'm planning to publish also a collection of geopolitical assets which in fact updated some of uh, the main uh, ideas of uh, this handbook now the idea of the handbook is just to point to some uh, trends uh, directions when it comes to uh, the development of the current uh, international relations. Now, I myself am um, expert uh, in um, international relations from a realpolitik and geopolitics uh, perspective. And what I've been doing over the last 12 years was to analyze certain uh, trends uh, when it comes to the shifts, the changes in global affairs. And first thing that I noticed was that um, Contrary to the previous periods in international relations where there were cycles of uh, globalization, we have many examples of uh, great powers um, uh, trying to, of course, um, impose their understanding uh, of, uh, you know, um, of how to rule the world. Um, contrary to these previous globalization periods, right now we are in an unprecedented uh, one because of um, two important uh, developments. The first, of course, was the collapse of the Soviet Union as the one superpower um, challenging uh, the other one, which was uh, the United States. And following uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, a uh, new period of the international relations 
30 years ago began, uh, in which the U.S. led socioeconomic networks, which were part of, uh, you know, of the um, so-called West. That means, of course, the United States, uh, the American allies and partners all over the world, that this kind of U.S.-led networks were then globalized and basically um, with very few exceptions, most of the countries in the world became part of these globalized socioeconomic networks. So what uh, came out of this uh, globalization cycle uh, in the 90s was first and foremost what I call a global system, basically encompassing these main uh, networks, uh, be it global economy, global finance, global trade, global energy, global agriculture, uh, global uh, organizations. Uh, I mean, I just only, I only need to uh, give you the buzzword uh, World Health Organization or World Trade Organization. So you get my point about also global organizations. And you see how an unforeseen um, effect of this globalization cycle that began in the 90s was the result which I called global system based on the fact that for the very first time in the human history, we are dealing with a global capitalist network. Like I said, most of the countries, no matter the political order, are part of it. And that means, of course, that uh, in the event of, uh, let's say, deglobalization, uh, which is also a very uh, kind of a natural uh, cycle that follows uh, globalization cycles. So in a case of uh, the globalization cycle, and right now I argue that we are in the midst of uh, such the globalization cycle, this would result, of course, in unforeseen second order effects. Uh, and we are already observing some of them. I will also uh, and. I will also, um, you know, um, elaborate on some of uh, these uh, current trends. But um, in fact, uh, just to conclude, this global system, of course, has been profitable for most of uh, the countries being part of it, but uh, to a different extent. And right now, one of the byproducts of uh, these systemic processes is the emergence of a second uh, system of power. This was also an unforeseen uh, second order effect because if you look back to the history of the 90s and then the history of uh, the beginning of uh, the new century, of course, China has been almost completely entangled with uh, the United States and, of course, this entanglement, which uh, had also this technical, very technical uh, term by mostly by the Wall Street uh, and by investors, uh, the so-called chimerica, um, uh, namely um, pointing to uh, a, a kind of um, almost complete, uh, you know, win-win situation between the United States and China because of the globalized networks. So this led to uh, the emergence of a second uh, system of power, one that is now uh, very visible in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific, in the Asian-Pacific region, one that is already producing centrifugal forces. Um, and of course, um, uh, 
uh, there are a few open questions here. First is, will China manage to uh, translate this emerging system of uh, power into a global power projection? Because still 30 years later, there is only one state actor which has a global power projection capabilities, and that is, of course, the United States. However, there are um, certain certain signals indicative of of uh, of uh, the trend that China may also. Uh, look for options how to translate this geoeconomic cloud that is a result of the globalization, a result of this entanglement, a result of this global system, the way it emerged over the last 30 years, um, that China is now going to translate this into uh, first, of course, regional power projection um, and the main terrains for it would be of course uh, the Indo-Pacific um, mainly of course uh, Strait of Taiwan, Taiwan being you know the main target of uh, Chinese uh, geopolitical ambitions and then of course the South China Sea. Uh, this is the maritime domain and there will be also our um, terrestrial domain which is mostly uh, the Central Asian and the South Asian uh, realm and in reality, uh, there are now this uh, several layers uh, which uh, we are simultaneously observing and uh, are struggling to uh, to deal with. The first, of course, is as I said, even before the pandemic, the uh, globalization cycle kicked in with a global economic stagnation, with the realization by the United States, and this was already during Obama's administration, that United States can no longer be the main source for uh, China's uh, growing uh, power leverage. And uh, of course, already during Obama's administration, there were efforts to address this uh, systemic issue. Then there is a layer, of course, that uh, and this is what uh, the handbook mostly addresses, of course. During Trump's administration, another American approach was introduced. Obama's approach uh, is now also basically Biden's approach. This is a very institutionalized American approach to create, uh, to forge basically alliances and partnerships all over the world, to find like-minded uh, um, state actors and also uh, international or regional organizations that collectively deal with the issue, so basically create a counterweight to uh, China's ambitions. But with uh, Trump, another a very national-like, very bilateral-like approach was introduced by the United States to tackle uh, the systemic uh, rival China. And this one meant, of course, that international organizations uh, and even regional organizations uh, more or less were devalued. And uh, what uh, Trump was doing is was more to engage on uh, bilateral manner with other states to 
put pressure on them also to uh, pick sides. And uh, by saying picking sides, I also uh, want to address uh, another important uh, trend uh, that uh, is now increasingly coming to light, and that is uh, the trend of the role of the so-called mid-sized powers, or what I call in a very technical term, uh, terms, um, in very technical terms, uh, free riders. Um, these are basically the regional actors uh, navigating between United States and China. So basically countries with regional power projection, with uh, important leverage. However, uh, countries trying, of course, to engage economically with China uh, while being strategic partners uh, with the United States in security terms. And by doing so trying to maximize their own gaze because they know if they take sides, uh, this would uh, mean a very binary world for them. And in terms of a binary world, you automatically are uh, excluded from the one, uh, you know, from the one's uh, networks. So in a sense, um, this uh, important trend was, of course, uh, amplified during Trump. Trump's administration. And even now, with uh, the new administration, we are still observing uh, this, you know, the, the developments uh, that are pointing to, uh, you know, a very different world than the one uh, in the 90s and uh, the beginning of the century, namely that countries are still trying to be very careful in their positions. And the most fresh, you know, example was, uh, for, you know, the, the war launched by Russia on Ukraine, where even after um, after the reinvasion, countries were still trying to uh, navigate and positions themselves, position themselves. And final trend, I think, very important one, which is going to be relevant for this transitionary period of international relations, is the trend uh, of the modus vivendi that emerged between China and Russia uh, since 2014 and has been amplified specifically uh, over the last uh, few years. Once again, a modus vivendi, not an alliance or an intent or call, what, you know, pick whatever uh, technical term you like uh, to describe a partnership. Um, it No Western understanding fits, I think, this, um, you know, uh, fits uh, the the the. the the real, um, the real um, background of this relationship. So I call it uh, the, a modus vivendi of systemic coordination in the key strategic domains. And these key strategic domains are exactly the same that are relevant for the transitionary period of the global system transformation. That means the, that both countries realize the necessity to coordinate very close, not just positions, but also actions in the field of uh, economy, trade, uh, defense, energy, agriculture, that means, of course, uh, commodities, raw materials, uh, but also space, uh, international regional organizations. And why? Because they know that if they coordinate 
uh, their positions, if they actually build a stronger uh, counterweight to uh, American power projection in the world, uh, they can also have better chances to survive this transitionary period. Uh, in the international relations, they can also um, navigate better uh, by, of course, still maximizing their own, uh, their own uh, national interests. And, of course, uh, they have a, a plethora of, um, of overlapping uh, geographic uh, areas uh, where they can coordinate uh, and uh, benefit from this coordination. I will elaborate on this a little bit later. So take all these important layers, uh, like I said, the de globalization cycle, even before the pandemic, amplified by the pandemic in several important uh, areas, such as uh, uh, global uh, supply chains, um, reconfiguration, um, decoupling between United States and uh, China in all relevant networks, uh, emergence of a modus vivendi between China and Russia, even following Russia's war on Ukraine, and uh, um, a kind of um, a huge group of uh, free riders being, so to say, squeezed in between while trying to avoid uh, sites. And I will stop here. So, so, Belina, I just had one small query. So, when you talk about the global system, are you looking at it from a mimetic sense, like a Dawkinian sense, where it is, uh, I'm not saying it is exactly an organism, but it is kind of uh, evolving at a constant level, at a multi-layer level, uh, to get it right? So, I look at the global system from uh, from the perspective of uh, systems uh, theory and uh, and complexity. So, if you take a helicopter view um, at the international relations, you would see certain patterns uh, of behavior, you know, within the international relations. But also, you would identify certain interconnections between the main components. If the main components of uh, you know of the of, uh, of the global systems are in fact also systems themselves. This would be the global finance, the global capital markets, the global monetary issues, the global energy, the global um, trade, agriculture, and so on and so forth. And then if you look closer at this component, so it's a very macro perspective of the world. And if you look then at these components, you will identify the networks that are connecting the states. And by identifying these interconnections, by identifying the dependencies, these so-called interdependencies between the states uh, in all these relevant socioeconomic networks, one can actually assess uh, the trend developments uh, in these relationships. So it's a very kind of a neutral approach, um, a, a time uh, costly one, of course, uh, to uh, carefully observe all the signals and to try to identify the trends directions. But I do argue that the trends and directions then give you some answers which are not politicized because they do not depend on, uh, this is not a bottom-up approach where you look at the dynamics within the countries and then depending on the party politics of uh, country ABC, uh, depending on party connections between countries ABC and then depending 
depending on the um, relations between countries ABC, you get uh, to uh, you know to certain uh, certain outcomes. Uh, this, of course, does not mean that the bottom-up approach is not relevant. On the opposite, I only deliver one perspective, and this perspective is not uh, encompassing the whole picture. So if you want to, uh, um, you know, uh, address and analyze relevant socioeconomic processes within countries, uh, relevant uh, societal changes within countries, uh, my approach on the global system uh, would not be suitable. It would not give you any relevant answers. Uh, my approach is actually suitable only for long-term um, systemic um, systemic uh, trends and uh, transformational processes so that you can also identify in advance in which direction, for instance, international uh, relations are going. So to give you uh, two examples, uh, the majority of the pundits uh, and experts and authors of the international relations have been pointing to the emergence of uh, multipolarity since decades. And we were living with this idea of an emerging multipolarity world over the last at least two decades. And I remember when I myself was a student, prior to the multipolarity case, this was uh, the case of the end of the history and the beginning of the global liberalism. And, uh, you know, due to the fact that uh, the Cold War was over and the one superpower was gone and there was only one superpower left that basically we would be uh, living uh, you know in this end of the history scenario which would mean uh, you know spread of democracy and spread of liberalism all over the world and uh, this was the indoctrination more or less you know when it comes to international relations uh, for a whole generation of, uh, of uh, young um, experts and this was followed then by the multipolarity thesis. And I uh, was arguing since 2014, uh, given as I get, you know, as I already elaborated, uh, given the fact that we were entering a deglobalization cycle, um, and given the fact that at the top of the system, there is one uh, current hegemon, if you like, only one state actor can deploy military force whenever in the world. Uh, wherever in the world, whenever it wants, and without any, or uh, let's say without significant consequences. And we observed this kind of behavior over the last 20 years on the side of the United States. But at the top of the system, there is also a challenger right now. There is a, is a kind of a natural process where uh, actually, thanks to the United States, a second uh, power emerged. But aside from this, uh, systemic rivalry at the top of the system, everything else in terms of uh, regional constellations, uh, rivalries, uh, competitions, everything else is taking place at the meta level of the international relations. And if we argue there is a multipolarity, then we will find this multipolarity at the meta level, but not at the top of the level. At the top of the global system, there is only one systemic rivalry. There is only one current uh, challenger of, uh, of, of the global order that has the capacities 
or maybe not. And as I said, this is an open question mark because we had the pandemic uh, over the last two years um, and because uh, the pandemic is still not over. We have a complete reconfiguration of global supply chains. We have a lot of decoupling in all of these um, socioeconomic networks. We have the trend of the deglobalization per se right now. And uh, we have uh, we have already a serious, uh, um, serious fragmentation in the international relations. So if China is striving to become this uh, second system uh, pole of the international relations, it will need, uh, of course, uh, partners to do so. It will need the relevant networks to do so. It will need the relevant structures to do so. But aside from that, Anything else that would be a kind of a multipolarity is actually taking place only at the level of, uh, you know, of uh, regions and um, and uh, basically what I call meta level of the international relations, where the so-called free riders are trying to uh, to um, build different ad hoc uh, geopolitical formations. In one of them, they are, for instance, competing, but in another one, they are uh, actually cooperating. I can give you exact, uh, an exact um, uh, case uh, with the relationship between Russia and Turkey, where they are, in fact, cooperating in some of the cases, in some of the regions, and at the same time, they are rivals uh, over regional power projections in other uh, parts of the world. And uh, this goes for many uh, other um, bilateral relationship, uh, bilateral relationships. So I don't buy the whole multipolarity um, thesis. Um, and I do think that um, by actually missing the chance to identify the real, uh, the real outcome of uh, these transformationary processes, we also cannot derive the right conclusions for what comes next. Um, I myself have uh, still a lot of open, uh, a lot of open uh, question marks, but I think that some of the trends directions point to already to realities that we may end up with in this uh, decade. So, Valina, I just maybe we can bring it to something contemporary as what's going on, unfortunately, right now you know, between Russia and Ukraine with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So if I was to look at it again from the global systems uh, perspective that you have uh, propounded in your ha handbook. So where do you see Pax Americana right now? So I'll give you an example. So you just shared an example of uh, Russia and Turkey. Now, without getting into the merits or demerits uh, of what Russia is doing or what Ukraine is doing or how the West or, uh, or the European Union is responding, because that's not my area of expertise. But I can tell you what I look at it sitting here as an average consumer of information in India. Uh, there is a certain set of information that stems from news outlets coming from the West. Now, the thing is, in India, we get access to everything, right? So we get access to the Russian side, we get access to the American side, we get access to the European side, and we get access to whatever we can make of from the Ukrainian point of view. But there is a certain set of actions that has been taken by the United States of America and the European Union together. Um, where I don't know which word should I use, and I use it with a lot of caution, but there's a weaponization of big tech also that has happened from the United States of America where you, know, where you have uh, certain, let's say, Russian outlets have been banned on YouTube. 
uh, Russian companies, the, the SWIFT system decision and many other decisions like that. Now, in, in a global world where the entire edifice, uh, which you rightly spoke about, you know, Fukuyama's thesis of the end of the world and, and stuff like that, obviously Fukuyama, I don't know, I, we can safely say Fukuyama has been pretty much proven wrong in, in multiple ways. Uh, but if we were to look at what's happening right now and we bring it to, what do you make of Pax Americana right now? Mm -hmm. um, and that is one of the questions I'm dealing with myself, like, are we going to end up with Pax Americana 2.0 or are we going to end up with a bifurcation of the global system, as I argue, or at least I've been arguing for the last um, uh, seven, eight years uh, following the events, um, um, you know, following the launch of uh, kind of a uh, deglobalization cycle, and given also the fact that we are in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution, and you point, you rightly pointed to the big tech uh, problem. And here, once again, um, I need to stress that the trend is clearly pointing to a systemic rivalry between United States and China in the tech domain, and anything else comes comes next, but by, uh, by, by, by far uh, not uh, with the same extent and scope as, uh, you know, as the uh, technological uh, competition between Washington and Beijing. So once again, uh, fourth industrial revolution, a significant, a significant domain of uh, systemic competition between two systems of power. And of course, obviously, um, the winner of the fourth industrial revolution is likely to be uh, the winner of uh, the systemic competition uh, in general. And why do I say that is because if you look back to the history of the previous uh, globalization cycles and also the history of the previous uh, systemic competitions, uh, like uh, during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, when the third industrial revolution was taking place in the 70s, there was indeed this uh, clear competition uh, between uh, Washington and uh, Moscow and their systems and their geopolitical blocks um, and also defense uh, alliances uh, over the technological breakthroughs. Uh, there was the introduction of nuclear energy, and then there was also, the, of course, the competition uh, over uh, space supremacy. And uh, obviously, United States uh, decided, uh, you know, uh, came out as a winner of this uh, technological uh, competition, which is why now, once again, there is an open question mark. I is it going to be United States once again, together with partners? Uh, as the next winner of uh, the fourth industrial revolution, or is it going to be Beijing with uh, you know with partners and with uh, with um, its uh, own geopolitical bloc? Uh, this is going to be very much uh, decisive uh, for uh, the direction of um, of the international relations, um, and also, of course. Uh, big tech uh, is being weaponized right now. And of course, uh, you uh, clearly are observing bipolarization in the technological domain. And this is going to remain the case. Um, next to it, of course, um, is that uh, what I argue um, that if we look at the period between the World War I and the World War II, 
Um, I argue that this was a kind of a interruption, intermission period between the two world wars, which would be uh, actually, which, which we should uh, uh, consider as one major world war uh, period. And we, as I said, with an intermission in between. So if we, if we look at it from this perspective, the same can be true also for the period between the Cold War I and now the emergence of the Cold War II. And my case for the Cold War II is, in fact, uh, Russia's war on Ukraine, which I think marks the beginning of uh, Cold War II. So we are not entering a period of a World War III, as a lot of uh, a lot of people were pointing to uh, over the last uh, two three weeks. Uh, I argue that. Uh, this period between the first and the second uh, Cold War was an intermission, was an interruption, so to say, and right now we are entering in the second uh, Cold War too. And in the Cold War too, there will be a, once again four main domains which will be relevant for the systemic competition. It's going to be about, once again, political economy. Political economy is what I've described at the beginning. So all of these relevant uh, trends uh, are to be followed when it comes to the decoupling. Uh, and the decoupling, by the way, is happening, uh, in fact, on both sides. It's not just that the United States is striving for decoupling from, uh, from uh, China. It's also that China is, uh, in fact, intensifying a decoupling from the United States for the obvious reason that uh, um, this interdependence can no longer function in a bifurcated uh, world. The second important domain is what you mentioned, of course, the tech domain. So a lot uh, of competition is going to take place in the technological domain amid the fourth uh, industrial revolution. The third important domain is going to be about uh, rules, standards, norms. So what, you know, what uh, has been the you know, big discussion uh, in the last uh, years about, uh, you know, that this time we are not going to have an ideological ideological component, that that's why this is not, this is not going to be a Cold War, but I argue that it's going to be an ideological competition as well, because as we see, there are different actors with different understanding of history, they do read history differently, they do interpret history different, differently, and they also interpret standards, norms, international law norms differently. And the best case right now is, of course, uh, Russia's war uh, on Ukraine, which actually from Russian or uh, Chinese perspective uh, is being interpreted in a very different manner. Um, and I think uh, that this uh, specific domain, when it comes to norms settings, uh, setting, uh, rule setting, um, and then, of course, uh, understanding of political order, understanding of uh, how you, uh, you know, what your relationship is to your own uh, population, how you engage with your population, what kind of uh, means and instruments do you use to control your population, um, all of this is going to be relevant in this domain. So once again, this is, of course, a kind of ideological ideological competition because uh, it is about uh, the hearts and minds of your own population and how you actually create narratives, impose narratives, and also provide support 
international or regional within the national or regional organizations for your narratives. And then finally, of course, the fourth, for the fourth important domain would be uh, how you manage uh, your partnerships, how you forge your uh, alliances, how do you create actually geopolitical and geoeconomic blocks. And once again, we are clearly observing bifurcation, even in this domain uh, already. Uh, just to give you the example with Australia, Australia, which has uh, a very strong uh, geoeconomic uh, cloud with China, has a lot of, um, has a lot of trade uh, and economic ties with China, has in fact sided with the United States and entered the security and defense pact with the United States and Great Britain. In fact, because of China. So I think that, uh, and this is of course one of the few exceptions right now at the regional level when a uh, regional actor uh, with a certain power projection um, in the region, specifically in the Indo-Pacific, has decided to side, uh, to side uh, with the one of the two systemic competitors. I argue that at some point of time, depending on how accelerated the transformational processes will be, more regional actors will be confronted with a reality where they will have to take uh, either or choices. And right now, of course, each one of them is trying to, you know, slow down this uh, process, uh, these processes. But at some point of time, uh, at the tactical level, oscillation may work. At the strategic level, oscillation never works. So, I mean, between two chairs, you uh, the, the the chance that you, uh, remain, you remain grounded, basically, you know, with uh, with less options, um, is uh, is uh, pretty high. So uh, to go back uh, to, um, uh, to 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 your uh, question, also on uh, Russia's war on Ukraine, I think that the timing of uh, the decision by the Russian president was no, not coincidental. I think it has very much uh, relevance uh, for what's going on in the world. And he factored in uh, these transformational processes, of course, from a Russian perspective and what may work for him and for his country. And I think that uh, it was uh, a manifestation of the beginning of the Second uh, Cold War. And of course, um, we, we are about to see in the next weeks and months um, whether this uh, thesis uh, of mine will be validated. But certainly, he factored in the bifurcation of the global system. Certainly, he factored in uh, also uh, China's uh, backing, uh, economic, financial, um, and uh, in terms of trade. Uh, no matter what uh, China has been saying or not saying, no matter how many calls uh, Biden will make uh, with uh, the Chinese president, I uh, argue that still the case for uh, significant support for Russia coming from China um, is in place of not because of uh, any altruistic reasons, but because of uh, two main factors uh, from a Chinese perspective. The first one being that uh, China fears the United States global power projection most. And by backing Russia, China keeps the United States busy in Europe. And that means, of course, uh, that, um, 
America will, uh, you know, it will take time for America to um, shift its focus on the Indo-Pacific, where in fact, I argue, uh, the main American power projection is going to take place in this decade. And second, of course, is that uh, for China to become a successful global uh, competitor, uh, there is this terrestrial dimension, which is equally important um, from a geopolitical and geoeconomic uh, perspective, and that is the terrestrial dimension of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, which is yep. uh, mostly a terrestrial connectivity in Eurasia and in South uh, Asia. And for doing that, China needs Russia. China cannot be successful. Heartland power without the backing of uh, Russia. So Putin has factored in this as well, but Putin is also factoring in increasing tensions between China and India. And once again, it's not going to be the United States, but it's going to be Russia that is going to somehow mediate and try to facilitate bet between them in order to you know, scale down the military component of uh, this confrontation. But it's just a matter of fact, uh, it's just a matter of time, in fact, even in 2020, Two, I would uh, actually anticipate military tensions between China and uh, India. And of course, what he has been also factoring in is the American retreat from specific regions. One being the Middle East and second in the long term being Europe, because as I said, America don't want to, does not want to deal with uh, Europe anymore. America actually wants to deal with the Indo-Pacific and with East Asia. And I think that given this background, of course, given also tactical developments, which I can, I can also address later, this led uh, to uh, the decision to uh, launch a full-scale war on Ukraine. You know, this is fascinating because uh, sitting here in India, so when New Delhi sees the weaponization, like I spoke about of big tech, it scares a lot of people because uh, it's a very simple thing, right? If they could do it to Russia, they could do it to me. It, it's a very simple mindset. Human beings at the end of the day are, are, uh, are reactionary animals. Also, uh, about obviously you know what i what i see when i look at foreign policy or uh, international affairs is yes there is a lot of talk about value based systems and value based orders and worldviews but i honestly if if one peels the layers away i see a lot of transactionalism when it comes to foreign policy so so america might uh <laughs> You have a you could have a Jen Psaki coming on the White House correspondence uh, press conference and um, saying, "Oh, uh, it's not really good if India buys oil from Russia at a cheaper rate because the Russians are giving an offer." But not even once would the Americans, let's say, chide Europe for for that matter, Germany, who has significant you know energy dependence on Russia, and and they're clearly not stopping it even when the war is going on. It, it's quite clear. It's clear as daylight. So it creates very interesting scenarios. But having said that, uh, when it comes to China, India would need the assistance and the support of America, whether 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 Indians want to admit to, admit to it or not publicly. I don't know about that. I mean, I, I don't see any problem admitting to it. In fact, I, uh, at a very personal level, I've never really had a problem with Pax Americana myself because I, I'm someone who who kind of believes that the world is always going to have uh, albeit in a soft way, some sort of a policeman. And if if the policeman, if I was to select 
the policeman i mean i don't know how to say it india was never going to be that policeman india had its own issues and i i am saying this i'm not saying you're saying this so so before somebody jumps on this it's me who's saying it not you uh i always was comfortable with america being the policeman because uh from a value based perspective i always were more comfort, comfortable with uh, liberal democracies in comparison to let's say the chinese model or the russian model but having said that we are entering into this multipolarity where it's almost as if it's so confusing at one spot russia needs china but then the russians also need india because we are one of their biggest purchasers when it comes to arms and ammunition uh, at one spot india might need america but india at the same time needs russia because 60% of our artillery or or our defense equipment is from russia so uh, you know in the scenario where there is some sort of a military conflict that india has we don't want to be in a situation where oops we don't get any kind of uh, assistance in terms of uh, backup from the russians So it's kind of confusing. At the same time, uh, I think the Indian Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister Narendra Modi, does realize the problem of relying too much on others. And I don't know if you've heard about this Atmanirbhar Bharat. Atmanirbhar Bharat means self-sufficient, right? That that's the whole movement of uh, of the current government. And they and when they talk about indigenization, they don't talk about closing yourselves to the world. What they're talking about is weaning yourself away from the world. And the right word you said was decoupling. Basically, you you don't rely on anyone and you create these transactional relationships with everyone literally so in that situation velina who gains in the russia ukraine war in the end does america gain does china gain does russia gain does india gain because i i don't know what's happening out there to be very honest i'll be the first one to admit i literally go on social media if you read european news ukraine is resisting russians are dying you go on russian uh, russian uh, sources russians are winning they are going in they're going in they're going in i have no clue what the truth is i mean i have literally got no idea what's happening and i'm just sitting here and i'm like people are so confident about these things when as someone who just asks questions my only question is how can people be so confident then Yes and I'm not confident as many people tend to be I just uh, try to make sense uh, of all that is happening from a strictly realpolitik geopolitical perspective and once again I stress this is not encompassing the whole picture this is not telling you the whole story this is not this is only one side of the way we look at the world and international relations and i do not argue that this is uh, should be you know uh, should be the only relevant side uh, that needs to be considered but um in my case from my professional experience it helped me a lot to identify in advance or let's say um in a in a better time frame um when it comes to the systemic uh, when it comes to the systemic processes so in a sense i i i see myself more as a climate than a weather expert and because you are now asking me a question that is relevant for the weather like today is cold but tomorrow is going to be warm and i can of course i will try to give you an answer but from the perspective of uh, a climate expert looking at the long term 
uh, trends and not, uh, you know, the tactical, because war is war. And of course, it can have U-turns, unexpected U-turns. And we cannot factor in this, uh, this particular um, U-turns or shifts uh, in the warfare. Um, and second, of course, uh, because uh, there are so many layers that uh, entail information we don't have. So we only have the open source information. Um, and of course, the two, uh, two uh, sites are, of course, uh, shaping the informational space uh, to the point that they, of course, need to create an advantage for them, which is understandable uh, for domestic consume, but also for the consume of uh, their international partners. Now, let me try to uh, summarize it uh, from, you know, my, uh, from my very tiny uh, angle uh, <laughs> from which I'm looking at the world. Uh, as I said, once again, and I want to stress the timing is not coincidental. I was absolutely convinced already in December that we are going to witness a military, uh, a military reinvasion by Russia. Um, and this is going to happen after 20th of February, after the end of the Olympics. Uh, all of this is actually, you know, available. All of this analysis and assessment is available. What I got wrong is that uh, the, 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 the final outcome of this reinvasion should be a complete subjugation of Ukraine uh, by Russia. And I saw this in a time frame of 10 to 15 years. So in a sense, I was anticipating a military attack which, with limited scope and limited um, time frame uh, starting after 20th of, December, of, um, of February and uh, the military operations uh, in all of Ukraine. So basically a full-scale war was launched uh, on 24th of February. So what I try to say is that uh, the Russian president decided to go uh, all in on Ukraine and to make a move uh, on Ukraine uh, in once, so in you know by actually attacking the whole of Ukraine, and uh, I uh, analyze and assess these uh, developments as uh, part of something bigger than just uh, you know the relations between Russia and Ukraine. The Russian president is seeking to upgrade the position of its of his country in this uh, global um, transformational uh, period of the international relations. He's trying to upgrade the position of Russia between China and United States. And in order to uh, succeed, in order to have a better positioning, to have a, so to say, pole position, placing himself in the role of which, in which China was in the 70s, basically, uh, that would mean that neither United States nor China would be able to win a systemic competition against each other without the participation of Russia. So in order to succeed in this, he needs uh, a bigger geopolitical uh, project. And this would include Belarus. Belarus is already under Russian control. Uh, Putin basically saved uh, the Belarusian president Lukashenko following the protests after uh, August 9, 20, 
2020 when he actually, um, well, he actually went against his uh, own population. Um, and uh, without the intervene, uh, inter interference of uh, Russian president, he would, uh, he would not have remained in power. And meanwhile, there are Russian troops. There will be probably Russian uh, bases and in future maybe even Russian nukes uh, being deployed in Belarus. So Belarus is already under control, but he needs Ukraine. He needs Ukraine not just because of his historical assets he has been publishing. Putin needs Ukraine as, you know, uh, in order to uh, unify, uh, uh, as he puts it, uh, you know, the Russian... Uh, Belarusian and Ukrainian people as being one people in his uh, in his mindset and also to use the territory. It's a huge country. That would mean that if he, succeed, he succeeds, he will end up being the largest uh, and most powerful European state on the old continent. And that would, of course, mean bordering directly the European Union, having nukes uh, being deployed directly at, uh, you know, uh, on the border of the European Union member states. And of course, that would mean a completely new equilibrium of the European security order, where he sees himself in the position of imposing the new rules, the new rules of the game in Europe. And of course, if we look this at, at this, uh, at these calculations, also from the perspective of being uh, the junior partner of the Dragon Bear, obviously a relationship which is asymmetrical, and obviously Russia is already being described by everyone as the junior partner in this uh, Dragon Bear relationship. But even then, if you look, if we look at it from this perspective, a junior partner of the Dragon Bear, which is allowed to redraw the maps in Europe and impose new rules uh, of uh, the security architecture in Europe is, of course, uh, still a powerful, uh, powerful player in the old continent. And as I said, from a Chinese perspective, uh, it would mean also that he would keep the West busy for a long, long period of time. Now, if you look at it from the Ukrainian perspective, um, actually, a full-scale war has been anticipated by the advisors of uh, the Ukrainian president at least for the last few years. And in reality, um, the only uh, option for Ukraine to actually uh, sustain uh, this was, of course, a cooperation with NATO. Uh, cooperation does not mean membership because nobody was expecting Ukraine to become a member. But the very fact that uh, Ukraine is sustaining uh, 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 successfully, in fact, uh, a full-scale full war by Russia, uh, already 21 days is, in fact, due to the help of the Western countries. And in reality, even though that uh, Ukrainian elite knew that there will be no membership by NATO, the only option for them was to still cooperation with the West in order to uh, gain as much uh, in military terms, in terms of training and in terms of, of course, uh, uh, ammunition and uh, defense weapons from the West in order to sustain a full-scale war. Because uh, the alternative of full-scale war from a Ukrainian perspective is a subjugation, a complete subjugation of a sovereign country by another one, 
basically, Ukraine, if Ukraine loses the war, um, it would mean that there will be no Ukraine on the European map. There will be no sovereign country uh, called Ukraine uh, on the map. So it's actually not just a struggle, uh, but it's a war over the very existence of a sovereign country. So you see how actually how uh, how um, um, precarious the situation is uh, also uh, from a European perspective. Because right now, the European powers without the American hard power are in fact not capable of preventing any military attacks by Russia on the old continent. They are reacting to the military uh, operations uh, um, in Ukraine, in the whole of Ukraine, because as I said, Russia attacked from all sites, not just uh, in the east of Ukraine. So basically the European powers, what they are doing right now is in fact to react to um, to the to, to to Russia's war by introducing severe sanctions, but they were not able to prevent it from happening, and this, of course, may may have a serious psychological effect uh, also on the global power equilibrium. In a sense that uh, kind of a geopolitical irrelevance is emerging when it comes to the old continent, specifically when it comes to the old continent, even though that they are now coherent in their position, even though that they are now cooperating, I still fear that uh, the result of this war may also mean uh, geopolitical irrelevance for the European powers. And in a sense, if these trends continue, um, Europe may turn in something uh, what I call a geopolitical backyard of uh, the international relations. Now, of course, to go back to what you correctly pointed out, um, in the first uh, 10 days of the war, uh, European Union powers have traded oil and gas and coal with Russia in uh, the amount of uh, almost... Uh, and actually more than 9 billion uh, uh, euros. So you see that, in fact, uh, European powers were also co-financing the war of Russia against Ukraine because of this interdependence, uh, as you uh, rightfully pointed out. Uh, uh, so in a sense, of course, um, now they do realize they need to cut this interdependence, but uh, geopolitical analysts uh, like uh, myself were actually pointing to uh, the need uh, to uh, cut this interdependence uh, already, um, you know, 10, 8, 5 years ago, because if you are too dependent only on one supplier, uh, you make your, you put yourself in the position where you will be politically affected uh, by this uh, player. And of course, um, you mentioned uh, the example of India. And here, once again, there is a similar discussion about uh, self-reliance or we call it strategic autonomy. Uh, or um, uh, strategic sovereignty, uh, these kind of uh, debates are right now taking place also on the old continent. We have also similar um, debates in the United States. Um, and this is, uh, of course, very much uh, linked uh, to uh, the decoupling and the deglobalization uh thematic. Uh, so in a sense, uh, I argue that um, the relevant uh, regional uh, 
um, great powers are going to further accelerate the trends of uh, um, not so much self-reliance because uh, in an interconnected world, it's impossible to be, uh, you know, to cut uh, off ties to uh, the rest of the world. But what we are going to increasingly observe is reconfigurations of supply chains, um, reconfiguration of commodities uh, relationships, uh, you know, depending, depending on uh, the um, trust uh, and, uh, the, um, and of course, the scope of um, independence uh, with uh, third uh, countries. And here I see a huge potential actually for Europe and India, given yeah. the trends I identified. Why do I see a potential? Because both India and, and the European Union, in fact, are striving for a third way. They do not want to be affected by the bifurcation. They do not want to take sides. India mistrusts the United States for obvious reasons. And uh, also the um, European Union does not want uh, to uh, define China as, um, as a security threat. And a third way would be a kind of a probably similar development to the non-alignment uh, development uh, in during the Cold War. So in a sense, uh, Europe and India could come together if they in fact manage to um, somehow overcome uh, the what you described also correctly uh, these uh, value-based uh, definitions and in fact are more realistic about uh, the future potentials and also more realistic about uh, their role in the world. Yeah, in fact, in your, even in your, in your handbook, you talk about, if I remember, it was on page 21, it was convergences with many and congruence with, uh, with none. And I agree with you. I think the as far as the global uh, global world is concerned, I think that is the future of the world. Um, I know. I just I, I, at times when I uh, listen to politicians uh, talking about values, and I mean, even a novice who knows a little bit of history would know. I mean, what are you talking about? It's, it's, you know, that's the reaction, and 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 it applies to India too. By the way, I mean everybody. There are no to use the term holy cows. Uh, it, in foreign policy, right? Everybody, I'm not a moral uh, model relativist. I, I believe the Western value structure and Western values are something that are very closer to what we in India have in terms of value structure. So, so beyond a point, I don't believe that India would ever have uh, beyond a certain level a very antagonistic relationship with the West. But yes, the Western preaching, especially from the American side, does get to the Indian side, and and I think the Indians uh, uh, need to let the Americans know in in uh, is as polite a way as possible that listen, we're not going to listen anymore. If you're going to say something, we're going to you know we're going to tell tell you off again. But maybe we can now get into the latter half of the discussion, and I want to. Uh, you know, maybe we can explore two, three more areas and conclude our chat. But I was, I was wondering. So you did talk about Europe as an, as a cumulative entity. Now that fascinates me because even inside Europe, right? So, so, so let me put it to you like that. So we obviously everybody, a good friend of mine, you know, recently on the podcast spoke about this point, and I kind of agreed with him. You know, people often talk about Orientalism, right? So my friend said that we should also talk about Occidentalism, 
So I'll, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you know where, I, where, where we come from, right? So everybody seems to have this opinion on the Orient and it's, it's from a prism of the West and the West is trying to understand the former colony from a Western prism. And it's not trying to understand the former colony on the terms set by the colonized, uh, colonized itself. Similarly, at times that the former colony looks at the West and the, the term the West is bandied about very loosely. You know, it's almost as if everything is the West. So Australia is the West, New Zealand is the West, the Europe, Western Europe is the West, America is the West, uh, Canada is the West. But these are distinct nations and distinct cultures. There are, I mean, as someone who has traveled a little bit around the world, it is quite clear that the Germans have a different value structure on many things in comparison to the French or the British. Now, you you spoke about Europe as an entity. Now, so what what are those common interests then? Uh, is the Europe now? If we look at England, for example, the United Kingdom has clearly left the European Union, right? Uh, and for whatever reasons, Brexit has happened. I don't want to get into whether they were good or bad because that's for some other discussion. But I'm just talking about what has happened in sense. Now, if we look at it, so how does Europe look at the world? Because obviously, NATO then the whole alliance was all about security, right? Uh, Post World War, the deal was cracked that okay, we the big brother in this relationship are going to be protecting you. Now, obviously, Trump comes in and, uh, you know, throws a, you know, sets the cat amongst the pigeons and says, oh, NATO is a useless, toothless body. NATO can't do this. NATO can't do that. They need to pay up more or stuff like that. But but even if I was to ask you, when we talk about Europe, what exactly is Europe then? What binds it then? Mm-hmm. First, before I elaborate on that, I want really it's important to me to stress uh, uh, one more thing about values because you um, you also uh, pointed to uh, an important issue, and that is that it's often misunderstood, in fact, within. Europe and also I would argue within the transatlantic alliance that what uh, actually defines uh, the societies within in terms of values and norms um, should be uh, should be applied to other societies and to other um, political um, and economic uh, and social systems in the world. And I argue that this is a wrong approach, that in fact, from a real political point of view, you know, your values-based society needs to be strengthened in, you know, from your understanding, uh, but uh, it is an inwards process, not outwards process. And you should never, you should never project your own values on others, and of course, it has worked. In fact, I mean, this values-based uh, international order, as it's being described by many, has in fact only uh, worked because of American hard power. And with you know declining American hard power, with withdrawal of United States from uh, various parts of the world, which is going to continue as a trend, by the way. As I said, Middle East is the next to come. We are already observing, by the way, regional uh, you know regional constellations in the Middle East because of uh, this trend. Um, so I argue that uh, with uh, you know the declining um, interest of United States to be you know everywhere in the world, uh, also this rules-based order will uh, will you know get affected. And in a sense, what I've been personally arguing here in Europe is that a values-based uh, approach can never be applied to the relations with other uh, partners and with other. Uh, 
countries, but it, it is always to be, you know, it needs to be a realpolitik approach in the sense that you have clear uh, interests and the counterpart has clear interests and you need to, you know, find each other somewhere in between. And a very fresh example is what the uh, United States did with uh, Venezuela. I mean, mm -hmm. they, the moment when, you know, when uh, things uh, started uh, getting messy uh, on the oil, global oil markets, they went to Venezuela, Venezuela to actually, um, to actually uh, cut deals, you know, so that Venezuela can uh, provide for the missing Russian oil on the global markets because of uh, the surging oil price. So you see clearly that uh, this, is a, uh, this is in a dissonance. Uh, and, uh, you know, societies, uh, societies in the West are often being presented to, with the picture that democracies do not wage wars, but in reality, democracies, in realpolitik terms, democracies wage uh, equally as many wars as non-democracies. It, it's just that democracies uh, wage less wars between each other, which was also, you know, the core idea of let's uh, make more democracies in the world so that we have uh, less wars. But in reality, the number of wars, military conflicts, as we are being told, hasn't been become less uh, in the international relations. And I argue that we are going to witness, unfortunately, even more uh, military conflicts and tensions um, in this transformational period of uh, the international, you know, international, um, in the international relations. Now, uh, let's uh, go back to, to your question. Uh, what is Europe? Uh, first, there is a trend already um, within the West, which is a kind of fragmentation trend that worries me a lot, but I still need to point it out. And that is uh, that the West is... Um, uh, is bifurcated itself uh, in a sense that there is an Anglosphere um, group of Western countries and then there is the European continental uh, group of countries. Uh, when it comes to security and defense uh, relations, when it comes to the approach to China, when it comes to the approach to uh, Russia, and I suppose when it comes to also the Indo-Pacific, uh, we are going to observe an increasingly fragmented uh, West and in this within this fragmented West, United States uh, with uh, specific, mostly Anglosphere countries, that will be Great Britain, uh, Australia is such case. Uh, and I think that uh, there will be also a place for India within this Anglosphere family. For instance, the country lateral format is such an example where India is already cooperating with the United States, Japan and Australia. They are also conducting military drills. It's a non-institutional approach so it's still not to be compared with AUKUS uh, between uh, UK you know Great Britain um, Australia and the United States but still uh, I think that the trend is quite clear Japan is going to be a re relevant player uh, South Korea you see that um, this is a Anglosphere approach to security and defense that is not being shared uh, by uh, the rest of Europe uh, in uh, to great extent. And the rest of Europe, uh, mainly uh, led by the French, German engine of European integration. So this is the family of the European Union uh, member states. Right now, 
27. Uh, there are also member candidates, uh, mostly in the Western Balkans. Uh, in this particular part of Europe, where in the 90s there were actually uh, the Balkan Wars, um, following the collapse of Yugoslavia and the dissolution of Yugoslavia. And uh, all of these countries are now on en route to becoming members of the European Union. And then there are also uh, six Eastern European countries that are between the European Union and Russia, which uh, are also trying to navigate between both uh, relevant regional actors. Some of uh, them, like Ukraine, are also part of uh, European Union programs. Uh, for instance, to get integrated into the common market. And in a sense, of course, this continental body uh, is going to witness a further uh, integration in specific uh, areas, being probably even, even there may we may end up with something that will look like a defense union if the countries within uh, remain coherent. Now, there would be also the danger, even even though that right now it does not look like that because all of them are very, uh, you know, very much united. But given the Anglosphere trend, we may end up with a situation where there will be a dividing line within the European Union uh, along the geopolitical interests of the United States, but also um, the actions of other relevant regional actors, such as Turkey or Russia, which are increasingly active on the old continent and specifically in the direct neighborhood uh, to the south and uh, the east of the European Union. And countries such as the Central and Eastern European countries uh, are, in fact, still convinced that the only security guarantee for their territorial integrity and for their existence comes from the United States and not from the European Union. So obviously there will be a big conflict, uh, I think, in the future when it comes to uh, how the French-German engine is going to overcome these uh, conflict uh, lines. Now, there is an interesting trend also when it comes to the relations of Europe with third partners. I mentioned one example with India. A lot has been achieved in the last two years. Unthinkable watershed moments if we look back to the uh, previous uh, periods. Uh, just to give you one example, the very fact that the European Union even relaunched the free trade agreement with India, which mm -hmm. was put on hold in 2013, and free trade agreement with India is actually much higher in the hierarchy of trade relationships with third countries than the current uh, comprehensive agreement on investment with China that the European exactly. Union also put on hold. So you see that even in this uh, very important framework with third countries, India is put much higher in the hierarchy uh, in terms of importance uh, uh, than, than, than China. But it's interesting that because you mentioned some of the um, uh, some of the societal, also societal trends and the way how people are now trying to also open up to uh, various concepts that were a taboo or were basically westernized. And I see even from that perspective, a kind of a 
you know, unforeseen potential for Europe, because right now, for instance, take Africa, for example, our direct uh, neighbor, there are logical connectivities between uh, Europe and uh, the African continent. The African continent is going to witness immense demographic and economic growth, and Europe would be a direct facilitator of, loss, of a lot of uh, connectivities. But right now, what is happening actually on the ground is that European powers are being squeezed and are withdrawing from uh, Africa. You know, the buzzword uh, Fran uh, French presence in Mali, um, the French ambassador was expelled. A lot, uh, you know, the, inter the European operation uh, and missions uh, were, you know, and basically the European presence has been also uh, squeezed by other uh, relevant regional actors. And once again, we are in a cycle of uh, regional adversary uh, in uh, Africa, in Asia, and even in Latin America. So once again, you see that the one European, the one actor that is not acting as a geopolitical actor is Europe. And in a sense, a lot of these countries um, for instance, uh, from Central Asia, they are from Africa, examples from Africa, but also from Latin America, will be likely reaching out to Europe because of the fact that it's no longer a geopolitical actor or it has actually never been a geopolitical actor as a collective institutional actor. And France and Germany, I, I actually argue that ni uh, none of the European powers right now, except probably for uh, Great Britain and to some extent for France, which is also an Indo-Pacific uh, actually actor, but none of the rest are have the means, have the potential or have the capacities uh, to uh, act as a geopolitical actor in the world, which is also being translated in the into the fact that the European Union, uh, with all this uh, relevant geoeconomic cloud, is in fact no relevant geopolitical actor. And that creates, of course, additional centrifugal forces in this global power equilibrium. And in a sense, there may be a potential for a bigger role exactly because of the absence of uh, geopolitical competition coming from Europe uh, in the future. But we, we will see. I mean, everyone, everyone else is already there. China, Russia, uh, Gulf states, India is trying to also enter the African continent and, uh, you know, to reach out Central Asian countries um, and, of course, uh, reach out the Middle East. Uh, so in a sense... Uh, uh, this is a kind of a very, um, very fluid geopolitical situation right now, consisting of so many different constellations, um, and it's hard to, uh, to you know, to uh, to get uh, the whole picture because of it. So one last question, Melina. Would you say it's safe to assume that the future of Pax Americana? actually depends a lot now on the result of the Russia-Ukraine war cry or the Russia-Ukraine crisis? The future of Pax Americana depends first and foremost on the way how the United States will tackle the competition with China. Not uh, mm. It does not uh, depend directly on the outcome of, uh, of Russia's war on Ukraine, but uh, uh, it can be significantly affected. I mean, if the modus vivendi between China and Russia deepens, as I, anti uh, as I anticipate, if China um, 
as I also anticipate, if my thesis gets validated, this relationship will uh, deepen in the technological domain, in the uh, domain of political economy, in the domain of norms, standards and uh, regulations, and also in the domain of uh, regional alliances. They will increasingly shape uh, the relations with Central and South Asian countries, uh, but also with uh, Middle Eastern powers. And this, will, of course, will create a heartland uh, counterweight to American global power projection. In a sense, this would also mean that a kind of a new iron curtain will be drawn in Europe, of course, with Ukraine. Once again, if Russia is successful with uh, with the war on Ukraine, this would also mean, of course, that um, uh, that uh, Russia would uh, become or will emerge as a bigger uh, geopolitical actor uh, in this particular uh, area. You know, this would be a vertical expansion of geopolitical and geoeconomic interests starting from the arctic moving from eastern uh, from the arctic uh, through the baltics uh, through the baltic countries this is the so-called uh, NATO Eastern flank, which is the Western flank of uh, Russia, uh, going through Eastern Europe right now. This is, of course, Ukraine, but this is also Southern Caucasus, the Caspian, the Black Sea, the Central um, Asian countries in Eurasia. So a lot of connectivities basically from coming from China go through this uh, terrain and will be under Russian control or under Russian facilitation. And then moving uh, forward to uh, the Eastern Mediterranean um, Sea, uh, the Middle East, uh, and then going through Africa, where Russia has been also striving to build uh, military bases in some African countries. And from there, once again, if uh, successful, of course, Russia would uh, get an access to the Indian Ocean and will suddenly be also present in the Indian Ocean with a relevant role for uh, for, the, for this decade in the Indo-Pacific. On the other side, of course, what the uh, United States would uh, be increasingly doing is uh, actually engaging with Anglo, mostly Anglosphere countries and partners in the Indian Ocean, in the South China Sea, in East Asia, so basically in the Indo-Pacific terrain, and trying to uh, create more uh, pressure on China uh, in this uh, concrete areas. And then once again, I don't see really a big role for Europe, however, a very significant role for India and how India is going to manage uh, this uh, increasing uh, Indo-Pacific uh, great power competition. Um, here, for instance, I think that right now, um, United States uh, needs India more in uh, you know, in this Indo-Pacific uh, region, um, then India needs the United States when tackling uh, China in China. its direct neighborhood. But this equilibrium may change as well. So in a sense, it is going to be more obvious for all of us that uh, uh, it's uh, either a kind of a binary world uh, that we will be living, a kind of a bifurcated global system. And that will, of course, have a lot of repercussions in terms of how to manage this coexistence. Because obviously, there is no interest in direct military confrontation between the systemic rivals. 
this has to be very clear right from the beginning. They do not want to engage in a direct military confrontation, but this was also the case between the United States and Soviet Union during the Cold War. However, we will end up with a lot more proxy wars, a lot more military tensions uh, with the indirect uh, backing of uh, the systemic rivals. And this is what is happening right now also in Ukraine. I mean, even though that China is, of course, denying all uh, these um, allegations. So in a sense, uh, it depends a lot uh, on the outcome. It depends also a lot on the outcome of these trends. They uh, point to one direction, but uh, given, of course, also the fact that uh, China uh, is now struggling a lot with uh, economic growth, uh, is still in a COVID-0 policy. That means a lot of lockdowns, uh, scaled down productivity, rising inflation, and so on and so forth, given also the fact that uh, the political elite uh, in China around Xi Jinping is probably also going to be further, um, uh, well, uh, in a kind of a conflict uh, when it comes to the future direction of China. A lot of open question marks remain. We need to be uh, you know, to re, you know to to uh, clearly to observe the trends, and we need to also be aware of the fact that uh, you know we may end up with one or other scenario. The way I see it, Pax Americana 2.0 right now is still very much the case, given the most severe sanctions that were introduced on uh, on, a, on, a, on on Russia, but also given the repercussions that we are already feeling, you know, all over the world, given the interdependence of the global system. But on the other side, also we should uh, be aware of uh, this bifurcation trend. And, uh, and then, of course, what I think is going to be very important is how fast India is going to grow. India has been projected to become the third world's uh, economic power. And if this is going to be the case, it will very much depend also on India's positioning in the global affairs, um, given the speed, the scope of its uh, geoeconomic cloud in this decade. Yeah, absolutely. It makes for very interesting times ahead. But, you know, uh, as we say, we can only give give our estimates and guesstimates about what's going to happen in the future. We never really can't say with certainty. And uh, as it famously says about the butterfly effect, you know, one flipping of the butterfly creates a tsunami somewhere in the world. So we never know in reality what's going to come. But um, we can only make uh, educated guesses. Uh, Velina, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure uh, to talk with you. Uh, it's always uh, good to get a, a different perspective, albeit a European perspective, because sitting in India, sometimes we tend to get only the American or the Russian view. So it's, it's actually for a change. It was really nice to hear the European perspective. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for this invitation. It was a great pleasure uh, discussing some of my concepts and um, trends uh, assessments with you. All right, guys, we're going to wrap this podcast up. Before we wrap it up, uh, just to let you know whether you're watching this on YouTube or you're going to be listening to the audio-only version, if you go to the description of the podcast, I have left the link of Valina's website. Uh, just go and click there and you can buy this handbook, which is the title of the podcast. I would urge all of you to buy the handbook and the, uh, she offers a lot of other courses and uh, 
you know classes too uh, i would highly recommend all of you to go and check it out also you can follow velina on twitter and if you like what i do over here please subscribe to the channel like the video also go and subscribe on spotify or itunes wherever you listen to the podcast and support the podcast on patreon or whatever other menus you have i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care goodbye